my name is Stephanie, and one of my favorite good farm smell memories is when it is like 20, 30 below in the middle of winter, and you have to go out and feed the cattle, and uh, you feed them a dry hay bale, and you cut the twine or the netting, and you're unwrapping it, and the hay starts to flake away, and all that dried grass and the dried clover flowers in it, it just smells so sweet. And it reminds me of spring and when things are growing. So that is one of my favorite farm smell memories. Um, And I still get to enjoy that every winter. Thanks to Stephanie for sharing that farm smell memory. If you want to share one of yours, please leave us a voice memo through the link in the show notes. It's really easy to do, and it's super interesting to listen to the vivid memories people have associated with farm smells. Now, on to today's episode. For the last month or so, we've been having these meetings with farmers to plan out the 2022 Moses Conference. The meetings are divided up by production type. So, for example, we've had meetings with grain farmers, dairy farmers, fruit farmers, and so on. The meetings are led by our organic specialists and by our board members who are farmers of each particular kind. My coworkers and I sit in on the meetings and take notes and occasionally ask some questions. After the meetings, our role is to identify the commonalities across the groups, the cross-cutting issues, and figure out how we'll cover them. This podcast series came out of those conversations. Over and over again, farmers kept bringing up climate change. Where I live, there's a pretty extreme drought this summer. And on the other hand, I know farmers in Illinois who have gone kayaking in their fields this summer. So I dug through the years of recordings of Moses Conference workshops that I could share with you on climate. The first in the series is a talk from the 2017 Moses Conference called Building Resilience with Soil Biology with Dr. Chris Nichols. At the time, Dr. Nichols was the chief scientist at the Rodale Institute. She is now an educator, consultant, and researcher with Chris Systems, that's K-R-I-S Systems, and My Land Company. She talks about how soil biology can help buffer your farm from weather extremes. Let's get to it. What I really want to talk to you about is this whole idea of building resilience. As a farmer's daughter, I recognize the fact that the one certainty that you as farmers have is that the weather is gonna be uncertain. That's the only certainty you have in agriculture. So the weather's gonna be uncertain. And what we're finding is that uncertainty has actually increased and we're seeing a lot more variability in that. We're seeing a lot more uh, heavy rainstorms. We're seeing a lot more periods of uh, no rain. We don't see those gentle long rainstorms anymore that, that go all through the day those types of things. So how are we gonna be able to allow for our systems to be able to thrive? And as those things are changing, we're also seeing changes in weed patterns, we're seeing changes in insect patterns, and all of these things are going to really be having major effects on the resiliency of our system. So what we really wanna do is really build that resiliency. And by working with the organisms in the soil, this is a big way in which I think that we're gonna be able to achieve that. When I was being trained in soil science at the University of Maryland, there were a lot of, there's a lot of dogma or a lot of sayings within soil science that, that people say. And it basically, you know, you can't uh, grow an inch, of, it takes a thousand years to grow an inch of topsoil, and you can't change organic matter percentages in your lifetime. 
And those are the things that, that, that soil scientists are taught. Now, I'm not going to say that those things are wrong, because there is some truth to that. But it all depends on what it is that you're doing and the perspective that you have on the system. So if we're talking about growing topsoil, when they're talking about growing topsoil, they're talking about a process that comes from down deep in the soil where you have the breakdown of the bedrock. That material has to migrate up to the surface and combine with organic matter in order to be topsoil. That's going to take a long time. I'm not going to tell you that that's not going to take a thousand years. But what we're trying to do when we regenerate the soil is actually take the power of the sun and CO2 in the atmosphere and have the plants transform that into the organic matter that's going to grow topsoil from the top down instead of from the bottom up. And that's what we want to do. We want to be able to do that. Now, again, you can change organic matter in your lifetime or you cannot. Those are choices that we make as individuals utilizing that power of the sun. So again, it wasn't that, I, that my professors taught me the wrong things. It was just that the perspective that they had and the way that they were looking about things was not necessarily the perspective of what it is that we can do. I give a lot of talks to a lot of different groups. And the one thing that I will always ask of people is what I want you to do is I never want you to say I can't. I'm going to talk to you about utilizing cover crops. I'm going to talk to you about utilizing no-till. I'm going to talk to you about utilizing biological inputs rather than utilizing some different types of chemical inputs, those types of things, even or certified organic chemical inputs. I'm going to talk to you about all of those types of things. And you can't ever tell me that you can't do it. We can do whatever it is that we set our mind to. Sometimes it takes thinking about things differently, and sometimes it's going to take some engineering or some retooling. No-till agriculture never would have started without farmers tinkering in their shops over the wintertime. That's how the Rodel roller, the Rodel roller crimper was designed, was coming at it seeing, I want to address this issue. I want to be able to see a way in it for us to be able to roll down a cover crop and create a mulch layer to prevent weeds. It works in the garden. Why can't I do this on a 100, 200, 300, 400, 500,000 acre field? Whatever it is, it just takes thinking about it in a little bit of a different light. Again, I'm a farmer's daughter from Minnesota. I worked in North Dakota for a long time. Many North Dakota farmers would tell me that they can't plant cover crops. Their season is too short. I was in an area in North Dakota and central western North Dakota that our average annual rainfall was somewhere between 12 and 14 inches. There's not enough rain to be able to plant cover crops. It's too wet. I can't plant cover crops. I can't get out there early enough in the spring to be able to get that done. All of those things are things that we can solve. I've worked with farmers that do no-till and cover cropping near the Arctic Circle in Canada. If you can do this near the Arctic Circle in Canada, you can certainly do this in Wisconsin, in North Dakota, in Ohio, in Illinois, in Indiana, in Iowa. We can do this. It just is going to take a little bit of different thinking and a little bit of creativity in all of this. So in 1942, the founder of the Rodale Institute, J.I. Rodale, wrote on a blackboard, Healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. What we're doing is we're actually taking that and extending this to a healthy planet. And we're doing this by the foundation of the soil. 
This is the can part of everything. The soil is the foundation to this system. And so the definition of soil health, this is the USDA sort of accepted definition of soil health, and it's the continued capacity of the soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains animals, plants, and humans. Continued capacity to function. That's some of the key words that I wanna stress here, is that continued capacity to function. Because that's what it is that we wanna do. We wanna make sure that our soils are going to be able to provide the resources to the plants throughout the entire growing season. When you're locked into a system that you're putting inputs, whether it is synthetic chemical inputs, or even in some cases, or some organic inputs, when you're locked into a system, that that's the only way in which you're putting things into a system and you're not working with the biology that's in the soil, what's gonna end up happening in that system is that you're not gonna have that continued capacity to function. You wanna make sure that the plant has its needs satisfied every day during the growing season. You wanna make sure that you're putting carbon into the soil on a continuous basis all the time in order to be able to get the system to function. Uh, some of you have probably seen a presentation by David Brandt. He's a farmer uh, near Carroll, Ohio. Uh, this is David Brandt's soil. I'm sure you can probably tell which one it is. This is David Brandt's soil. This is across the fence line. This is his neighbor's soil. That's wonderful. We do these things all the time. I love this stuff. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because fence lines are incredible, right? You can have completely different soil on one side versus the other side. It's this like little invisible barrier that keeps rain out and sunlight out and all of these types of things, right? Because it wasn't something that the farmer did. God forbid, that couldn't happen. No, what it actually is is something magical that happens when you put fences in. Roads do this all the time. Have you ever seen that? I drive all over the country. You see a road, you go stop on one side of the road, you have a completely different soil type than the other side of the road. Seriously, they did something really bad. Somebody should sue the people who built that road because something really bad happened there, right? No, these are the things that we do to the system. This is the things that we can have happen in this system. And so what we really have in our system is we have a carbon problem. And I'm not talking about climate change and CO2 in the atmosphere and all of those types of things. We have a carbon problem in the fact that we don't have carbon in our soils. Our soils are starving for carbon. And again, what we wanna do, what we need to do to get this to function is to take the power of the sun and CO2 in the atmosphere through the plants and photosynthesis to drive this system to be able to increase and improve the health of people. We're gonna get more nutritious food because we're gonna work with the soil health. We're gonna work with the soil biology. We're gonna increase that biological activity to free up the nutrients and the minerals that the plants need and that we need to have to go into that soil environment. And we're gonna be able to improve water infiltration and water holding capacity and water quality and efficiency of use. We're gonna get more water into the soil when you have the heavy rainfalls. We're gonna be able to hold onto it for a longer period of time because we're gonna have periods in which it's not gonna rain every day that we need it to rain. I mean, you know, if I could control the weather, life would be great and make lots of money. We can't do that, but we can control this. 
Yeah, there are some things that you can't control, but that doesn't mean you can't have a productive system. It means that we need to figure out ways in order to be able to increase that productivity. The best filters on the planet are carbon-based filters. We cannot have air quality and water quality without having carbon in our soil. The soil is the foundation of air quality and water quality. And the reason it is is because of the carbon that's in that soil environment. We're not stupid. We make those great filters in order to be able to do this for us. Why can't we utilize that in the soil? Why do we not think about that? We've totally thought of the soil as this bench top that it, all that matters is what's above ground, not what's happening in that soil environment. We're able to utilize the natural fertility of the system. We have a great resource in North America. For the most part, our soils contain everything the plant needs to be able to grow. Everything the plant needs to be able to grow. The thing is, is that a lot of those nutrients aren't in a plant available form. I think of this a lot of times like as if you were shipwrecked and you're stranded on the ocean and you're surrounded by all the water that you need but not a drop to drink. That's the way that that system functions, is we need to have the biology to put those nutrients in the plant available form. The biology has been working with these plants for well over 400 million years in order to be able to get the nutrients transformed into the form so that the plants needed to take up. So you've got these systems and we're gonna then reduce soil erosion. We lose two billion metric tons of topsoil in this country every year. Two billion metric tons of topsoil. What a waste. And we spend millions and billions of dollars trying to clean up that waste. Dredging it out of the delta of the Mississippi. Dredging it out of our lakes and rivers and streams. Dealing with water quality issues. We can keep the soil in place if we utilize the biology in the system. So one of the things that we found at the Rodale Institute, this is data from our farming systems trial. We have the longest side-by-side -side comparison of grain crops, um, organic and conventional grain crop comparison uh, in the US. We're now going into our 37th year of continuous production in this project. So it's a great resource to be able to get information that's going on. And one of the things that we found was that we could see an increase in the amount of soil organic matter over time. Now you could see that this sort of happened fairly rapidly initially, and then it started to plateau. And you'll get some times when it'll go down a little bit. We're starting to see some coming back up. But the conventional has gone down, but it's more been a little bit of a downward flat line trend that you see there. Now the difference that we're seeing here is this organic matter content. It's not just the fact that we're seeing more organic matter in our organic systems, but the other thing that we're seeing is that we're actually gonna get organic matter deeper into the soil. So this is from one of our organic systems and we have the A horizon, we are growing topsoil from the top down. So we now have the A horizon, that organic horizon going down roughly about 10 inches deeper into the soil than we have in the conventional system. 
We estimate we've lost roughly at least 60% of the organic matter that's in our soils in the U.S. since Europeans came here and started massive cultivation. Roughly in this area of the country, we probably should have organic matter percentages that would be in the teens, in the upper teens, mid to upper teens. That's what we should have here. I firmly believe that if we could go and work with these systems and work with the biology and the systems that we could have across the country in the United States, our organic matter percentages be somewhere between about uh, 9 to 11%. That's sort of the average, because it's going to be less in some areas, especially in the Southwest, um, those types of things. Right now, our organic matter percentages throughout our average throughout the U.S. is roughly about 4 we got a long ways to go. But that doesn't mean that we need to despair and say we can't do this. There's a lot that we can be able to do. And again, the other thing that we're starting to take a look at is this idea of being able to go deeper. So a lot of the analyses that we do is on the very surface, but as we look deeper, we're really able to see how much better function there is to the system, improving soil health. So when we started, we saw a pretty rapid increase and then it started, started, like I said, to plateau a little bit. But if we were to take some of the knowledge we have today and insert that back in, back here where we started, I think we would have a much faster acceleration. And the knowledge that we have today is that use, more intensive use of cover crops, a diverse crop rotation, and being able to figure out a way to put some more livestock into the system. So our systems here, and I'll tell you a little bit more detail about the systems here, but our systems here, the green line is a legume-based system. Uh, it's a five-year rotation, and we have uh, legume crops within that rotation. Again, when we started, we didn't use cover crops. And we also didn't use reduced tillage. We used continuous tillage in this system, managing weeds with tillage. We introduced no-till into the system or reduced tillage into the system in 2008, which is one of the reasons why we're starting to see this going back up here. And uh, we also don't have livestock in this system uh, with the way the plots are designed. And that's a thing that I think can accelerate the, that to happen even faster. Uh, in our manure-based system, which is the uh, maroon one there, reddish-brown, that system is an eight to 10 year rotation. It has a perennial phase in the middle of the annual crop production. And it is designed around what a, a farmer who had an integrated crop livestock system would have. So we add back on there um, composted manure. And we also use crops in the rotation that are crops with, that would be fed to animals, including the hay crop that we have. Now, within that system, where we need to see room for improvement is not just the use, reducing some of our tillage that we started to do here, but we need to reduce our tillage even more. We need to figure out a way to be able to terminate our perennial crop and put in an annual crop without having to do tillage to take that out. And there are some things that we can do. There's some information that's coming out on how we might be able to do some of that. Some of it is that you can have an alfalfa crop, there are varieties of alfalfa that as they start to dominate, will start to, to sort of phase out naturally. What happens is alfalfa is very reliant on the rhizobium bacteria. When the alfalfa dominates in the field, 
there's actually a virus. It's called a bacteriophage. And that virus will attack the rhizobium bacteria. It's a way in which the ecosystem wants to keep balance. The ecosystem does not want to have a monoculture. So in that process, what it's going to do is that it's going to have this virus that will attack the rhizobium bacteria, and that will cause the alfalfa to sort of dwindle down. It'll lose a lot of its vigor. And then are there some ways in which we could manage grazing on that alfalfa crop to set it back enough and plant in some annual cover crops to start getting that alfalfa crop when it's going through sort of its own self-termination, utilizing some other types of biological aggressive methods, management methods, to be able to remove that perennial without having to do tillage. So are there some ways in which we can work with that? Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to completely eliminate tillage. There may be some areas. We are in um, Pennsylvania. We are in a tall growth forest environment, not like the, the prairie environment that you see here. So our, what our environment is driving is very tall perennials, is what the ecosystem wants to have growing there. And so how we're going to be able to have to manage some of the different types of plants, the different types of invasives we might be getting, some of the weeds, we may occasionally have to do tillage. But are there ways that we can reduce that even further? And so that's a lot of what our work is doing. We've had this experiment going for 35 years, but that doesn't mean that we've just let it sit there. We're constantly making changes. Um, we've also, when we introduce no-till in here, in the conventional system, we also introduce the use of GMOs. So we are utilizing the technology that is used by conventional growers to be able to see what the comparison is between the two systems. Yes. So the question is, as the soil organic matter starts to go deeper and with no-till we're getting more of an accumulation at the top rather than incorporating it so we would get some accumulation uh, below, are we changing the way in which we're evaluating soil organic matter? And that is one of the things that we are doing. So we do take these deep core samples. We take samples down uh, about three and a half feet. We divide them up into different depths and we run analysis on those and are doing sort of a whole carbon density type of, of profile for the whole entire soil. We don't do that every year. We're gonna take those samples about every three to five years, depending on where we are. So at this point in this system, we're at a, on kind of like a five-year sampling for that. When the system first starts, usually those deep core samples, you only do, you'll do them about every three years. But we take surface samples every year. So one of the other things that we're seeing with these systems, obviously, is, you know, this, again, side-by-side -side soils in our plots, more organic matter, more rooting density, more porosity, more structure in that soil, very compacted in this soil from the conventional system. And it also responds very differently when you put it in the water. I encourage all of you to do these types of things. You don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to have a master's, in fact, you don't even have to have a bachelor's degree, you don't have to have any degree to go out there and buy a shovel. It is the most important tool in agriculture. I don't advocate a whole lot of tillage, but I do advocate shovels. Because I want you to go out there and dig up some of your soil. Pull it up, feel it, smell it. 
We had a researcher, a colleague of mine, who did a study. We have you know, so these scientific methods that we measure soil health with. And what he did was he did a comparison of where the farmer, in the farmer's fields, you, you all have, you know, and one spot in your field is better than another spot, and you know exactly where it is, right? You know exactly where it is. So he went out there with the farmers and went to those spots in the field, you know, and had the farmer tell him where to go. And the farmer knew where he had healthy soil almost better than the soil testing did because of the way that he was looking at the soil. Not just at the yield that he was seeing, but the way that he was looking at the soil and feeling it and seeing what's happening, where you get ponding, where you don't get ponding, where you're going to get that, that better water infiltration, where you're going to get the, the plants that are going to look better throughout the entire season. All of those things were things that, that you know inherently about your fields. So again, it doesn't take a genius to go and grab a couple bowls. These are fish bowls. They work nicely. I don't care what kind of a bowl you grab. It really doesn't matter to me. Grab a couple of bowls, put some water in there, and drop a clot of soil in there and see what happens. Now, I can do this scientifically and tell you what the aggregate stability is in there and blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, is what is it that you see? How are we visually being able to represent this? Yes. Are there some ways, rather than just saying absolute values for percentages of organic matter that, that someone wants to achieve, are there some ways in order to be able to assess as we're improving soil organic matter, what types of improvements should we see within the system? What are some things that are going to get better? And um, it, it's difficult to be able to, to do that because you're right. There's a lot of different things where soil texture plays a role in this as well. And so having an understanding of your soil texture in relation to the organic matter that you have. And there is also a lot of things that we're finding where not all organic matter is the same. And so the roles that that organic matter plays in the overall function of the soil environment is very different. And so we use these tracking tools to say you should have this percentage of organic matter and we should do this and we should do that. What happens is wherever it is that your starting point is, as you start to put more carbon into the soil, even just a little bit, you will see a fairly rapid acceleration. Again, going back to this previous thing here, most of the improvements in soil function happen with these changes here. If we were to take this to a percentage of between seven and nine, we probably wouldn't see the same level of changes to function. We're improving the soil organic matter that's there, but we're really seeing a very rapid acceleration of functional changes very quickly. So like for water holding capacity, they say that if you take your organic matter percentage from a half percent to 3%, you can double your water holding capacity. But if you were to move in that same variable again, going from 3% to something like 9%, you won't double your water holding capacity again. So those first changes in organic matter are going to be the most, the best changes that are going to change the functionality of the system.
What you'll see after that are things that are going to help to build some of the more resiliency in your system. And again, as, as we're looking at where we stand today, building that resiliency is a very big part of what it is that we want to do. So it doesn't mean that you can go and be at 3% and say, you know, like I said, we're here, we're not stopping. We're trying to figure out why we're plateauing and seeing where we're going to go from there. Now, we may not see a huge change in yield, but we are going to maybe start to see some different changes that are very important to our system. Again, that more resiliency that you're going to get there. We're also um, starting to do more evaluations of nutritional content and starting to see differences in nutritional content with those changes that we're making. I don't want to give you exact numbers and say you have to be here and you have to do this. It's let's build organic matter in our soils. Let's see where it is that we can go with this. And so what happens in our soils when it comes to biology is biology has this very interactive carbon economy in the system. And so you have things like plants that are going to be trading carbon to fungi and bacteria, things like mycorrhizal fungi, rhizobium bacteria that are involved in nitrogen fixation, um, phosphate-solubilizing bacteria. You're going to have bacteria and fungi that are going to help to form soil aggregates and form soil structure, increasing porosity. You have more nematodes and protozoa that are going to eat bacteria and fungi and release nitrogen into the system. We have microarthropods that are going to help to prep residues for the bacteria that are in our system. So we have all of these different things that are going to be happening, and all of it is on this flow of carbon. Carbon is the currency. Nothing is free in the ecosystem. I have a lot of debates with Jeff Moyers, our executive director at the Rodell Institute. Many of you probably have know Jeff. I have a lot of debates with Jeff because Jeff tells me that nitrogen is free, and I tell Jeff that nitrogen is not free. But he's like, but nitrogen is free. It's in the atmosphere. It's free. You know, all we need is the bacteria to do this for. And I'm like, Jeff, it costs the bacteria. So I come at it from a microbial standpoint. He comes at it from a cash out of his pocket standpoint. To him, it's free. <laughs> but for me, my microbes have to pay for it. In a carbon economy, that's the, that's the point, is who's going to pay for it? The questions that you have to ask yourself is, am I going to pay for it out of my cash pocket, or am I going to let biology pay for it utilizing sun energy and CO2 in the atmosphere? That's all you have to ask yourself. Who's going to pay? Now, in the end, I'm not going to tell you that it may not impact your yield to a certain degree if you do have the plant pay for it. That's going to have some impact. That's going to have some ramifications on the system. But what we want to see here is we want to be able to see that we're going to be able to improve the system in the long run. And so, yeah, that may have impact the cash in your pocket, but what's costing you more? And everything that you do, I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. I'm hoping that through this talk and other presentations you've had here at Moses and, and other presentations that you'll go to and farmers that you'll talk to, you'll learn about different types of tools that you can apply. When it comes to soil biology, all that I ask you to do when it comes to soil biology and soil health is that you have forward momentum. You're going to take some steps backward. You're going to do tillage. You're going to add outside nutrients into the system. 
you're going to have more of a monoculture-based system and less diversity than we would have in some of our native prairies. But let's take big steps forward in seeing what it is that we can get rid of or reduce. How can we reduce those impacts so that you're always going to have forward momentum? Yeah, you're going to take steps backward. But I want you to be taking bigger and more steps forward. Farmer once asked me how he could maximize the amount of mycorrhizal fungi. I've been studying mycorrhizal fungi for 30 years, specifically that microbe, um, as well as some others, but that one more specifically. And he asked me what he could do. And I said, that's the wrong question. Because if you want to maximize the amount of mycorrhizal fungi that you have in your soil, you're going to go broke. Because it's going to cost the plant too much to be able to produce so much of those mycorrhizal propagules in the fungal hyphae. We want to have a balance in the system. You want to be able to still be able to have a system that produces. We're putting the system under stress all the time. That's what we want to do. We want to challenge that system. And because we're challenging that system and causing it to function at peak efficiency all of the time, we can do better than a native ecosystem. That is my bottom achievement level. That's my bottom. That's my minimum. I want you to do better than that. And I know that you can in the way that you're going to manage that system. So we have this picture. And some of you have probably seen this picture before. I like this picture. It's NRCS has designed this picture of the soil food web. And a lot of people love this picture. And they talk about all of this great diversity that's here. I'm the worst, world's worst microbiologist. Because I don't care if you know what's there. I care that you know that there's something there. But I don't care if you know if it's bacteria or fungi or what it is. I care that you know that there's something there that you need to help to get it to be functioning. So the most important component of this soil food web is this part. Because you notice without sunlight and plants, none of this exists. Again, it's where we put our attention, where we put our focus. Too many of us focus on this is really cool, which it is. Trust me, I love, I could sit in front of a microscope for hours. My spouse will call me up and say, when are you coming home? And I'm like, what? It's 8 o'clock already. <laughs> oh, the sun went down. I was looking at a microscope. <laughs> so I think this stuff is really cool, and I'm not trying to tell you that it's not. But... I understand that I don't have any of this stuff without that stuff. It's where we put our attention. And this is the stuff that you are in charge of. This is the stuff that makes the difference in your system. This is a diagram of the tree of life. Pretty much in the soil environment, we can have representatives from almost all of the branches of the tree of life in the soil environment. What that does is that allows for that resiliency. It allows for redundancy of function. If it's too cold, too hot, too wet, too dry, too salty, too acidic, too alkaline, whatever it is, whatever those conditions are, you've got a performer. And that's what you want to have. Not all of them are going to be functioning and growing all at the same time. But somebody will be there resting and waiting if those conditions present themselves. A lot of people say, well, you know, I look at something that's really small in a microscope. How can that really make a difference on a large scale? 
So I'd like to point out that the largest organisms in the world are microscopic fungi. The largest organisms in the world are microscopic. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> what am I here? What am I listening to this crackpot for? I don't understand her at all. The largest one that we have right now, it covers over 2,200 acres. It's in Oregon. It's reaching its way into Northern California, and it's about 2,500 years old. It's the largest organism in the world. So even something microscopic and tiny can grow to be massive. This is an individual organism. We've run the DNA to be able to show that it is an individual organism. We know that it's the same organism that's extending this far out. But these organisms, either individually or individually in large consortia, large individuals in very large consortia can work together to change entire surfaces of the planet. We didn't have land that was soil until we had fungi and bacteria and plants on that surface. We had minerals. We had rock. We had that, that parent material, that bottom stuff. Until you had fungi and bacteria that allowed for multicellular plants to grow, we didn't have soil. Soil didn't just appear from nowhere. Soil took work. Soil continues to take work. We're the ones that can be a part of that work. So again, you've got this huge diversity of different types of organisms, all coming in different shapes and sizes and playing all different types of roles. And they're kind of cute or kind of ugly, depending on your point of view. But they play very different roles in the system. But the biggest thing I want you to remember is that all of these organisms are starving and homeless. This is your job. This is the step forward that I want you to take. Every time you're laying out and making a management decision, ask yourself, am I feeding the soil or am I destroying the habitat of microbes? And yeah, sometimes you're going to destroy some habitat. Sometimes you're going to steal some food. You're going to have to harvest. You're going to do some tillage. But more often, can I continue to build that system? The organisms in the soil, I say that they're homeless, but they actually are ecosystem engineers. They actually will build their own homes. They just need the resources, and they need to make sure that their homes aren't destroyed on a continuous basis. And so that's the role that you're going to play in that system. And I really want to emphasize, so I'm talking about being homeless, but I really want to emphasize the starving. Because again, as we're looking at how we can accelerate this process, and grow organic matter more quickly. Organic matter is carbon. Carbon comes from the plant. The more you have plants growing, the more you're going to be able to feed biology. When the plants are going to be feeding biology is when you're going to have an environment in which the plants are through, going through the vegetative growth stage. So when the plant first, the seed germinates and it first starts to grow, the plant first starts to grow, it's not going to be doing photosynthesis. One, it's part of that growth period. It's not even above ground, so it doesn't have contact with sunlight. When it starts getting above ground, it's producing some green leaf tissue. It's going to contain the chlorophyll. It's going to be able to do the photosynthesis. But it's going to take a little bit for it to be able to get that whole system started. So you have a little bit of a lag phase at the very beginning of the season. 
usually roughly about three weeks. And then it's going to be able to start putting carbon below ground and start feeding the biology in the soil. When the plant then starts to go through the reproductive phase, reproduction takes a lot of energy. Ask your wives, ask your mothers. Reproduction's a tough gig, guys. Seriously. I know all you women here know that reproduction's a tough gig. Even if you haven't had kids, I've got nieces and I understand this whole thing. And, you know, I had a mother. So you understand that reproduction is not an easy process. It takes a lot of energy. The plant is going to take most of that carbon energy and keep it above ground. So it's not going to be putting that energy into the soil environment to feed the biology. So what we want to do in that environment is we want to make sure that we can keep plants growing as much as possible in that vegetative growth stage. And this is where advantages come with having cover crops. This is also why when we're doing things with trying to terminate the cover crops without using an herbicide, without using tillage, that we terminate the cover crops with a roller crimper tool when the plant is starting to go through the reproductive phase or is in the early middle of the reproductive phase. Because what we do with that roller crimper tool is we put breaks in the stem between the point that most of the carbon resources are, because they're all mostly in the reproductive parts, in the, lead, in the flower parts of the plant, but the minerals that are needed to make the proteins that can cover those wounds are actually in the soil. So the roller crimper tool is a successful tool because it puts breaks. It doesn't slice, it puts breaks, a bunch of them in the stem, a whole bunch of wounds so that the plant has to get those resources from those mineral resources to make the proteins in order to be able to cover those wounds. But the mineral resources are above all the breaks, they're below all the breaks from where the carbon is. The plant can't do it. It can't put the carbon, it can't get enough carbon past all of those breaks to get those minerals. So it's a very effective termination tool. The same thing is happening throughout the growing season. Again, I worked in North Dakota for a long time and it drove me insane because spring wheat was one of the dominant crops. Spring wheat puts carbon, and in fact, where I was at in central western North Dakota, they had a fallow period for a very long time. They've now changed some of that, but they used to have a fallow period. So once every two years, they grew a spring wheat crop. Spring wheat puts carbon below ground for maybe about five weeks. Think about it. Doesn't put it in the beginning. Doesn't put it when it's in the reproductive phase. Its reproductive phase starts before the longest day of the year. How much sunlight power of the sun can you possibly tap into to be able to maximize the amount of carbon that you could fix to feed the biology when you're only feeding them for five weeks and most of that five week period is before maximum sun time. Starving. Figure out what it is, what it's gonna take to make sure that these little teeny tiny, elegantly beautiful, wonderful organisms that can change your whole entire ecosystem are going to be able to be fed. We can live, any organism can live being homeless. Not happily and probably not through maybe its whole life cycle. 
but it can live being homeless. It cannot live, nobody can live if it doesn't have food. So just to give you an idea of some of the organisms that are in the soil, we have bacteria. And globally, there are five nonillion bacteria on Earth. Five times 10 to the 30. That's basically 30 zeros after five. That's a lot of bugs. It's a whole lot of bugs. Their number of individuals in a gram of soil or a teaspoon of soil can range anywhere from the millions to billions. There can be well over a tenfold difference depending on the choices that you make and the amount of bacteria that you have in the soil. Think about how many things you're killing with the choices that you make or how many things that you can cause to thrive with the choices that you make. They represent anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of different species and play a lot of different roles in the system. You have ones that can feed on organic matter that's easy to break down. They'll eat that organic matter and they'll convert that organic matter into plant available nutrients. You have organisms there that are gonna store and cycle nitrogens. Part of the cycling of nitrogen is you have both asymbiotic and symbiotic systems that fix nitrogen in the atmosphere. Most times we focus on the symbiotic nitrogen fixers. We actually can manage for some of the asymbiotic nitrogen fixers. They live primarily on the surface. They use, directly they use sunlight energy. It doesn't have to go through the plant. There has been some research being done on some non-legumes for asymbiotic nitrogen fixation. For a long time, there was also a lot of research, uh, I think some of it may be continuing a little bit, where they were trying to insert the genes for nitrogen fixation into things like corn, because they wanted to figure out how that could be done. The thing with it is, is it's a very complex system. There's actually a component that comes from the plant and a component that comes from the bacteria that helps for that nitrogen fixation process to happen. And it's not something that they've been able to isolate and figure out all of the genes and replicate very well to be able to get that done. So a lot of that research from that standpoint has been given up. But there's a lot of people who focus on this asymbiotic nitrogen fixation, including some bacteria that can be foliar, that can be on the leaf tissue and do nitrogen fixation on the leaf tissue. So we don't have to rely, they can fix, we don't even do much for managing these guys, and they can currently fix anywhere between 100 and 175 million metric tons. That is almost equivalent to what we make synthetically. So if we were to manage, again, the question always comes from people where they say, well, you know, these little guys, they can't make that much of a difference. If they do it without us putting a whole lot of work into it, that's half the way there, I think they can probably get the rest of the way there pretty easily if we were to manage them appropriately. You also have bacteria that will break down minerals and release nutrients that are bound to those minerals, including phosphorus and sulfur. We're seeing some people that have some sulfate issues because we had Clean Air Act that removed the, the sulfates, that scrubbed the sulfates out of our energy out of our coal fire plants. So we lost sulfur that came from the atmosphere and fell on the surface of our soil in an available form. There's actually a lot of sulfur that's in the soil. 
It's just not very available in the soil. But guess what? Bacteria that were a part of making the soil know how to do that. We don't need to break down high sulfate coal through an energy plant, put it up into the atmosphere, and have that fall on your surface of your soil. There are bacteria that will break that stuff down, that will release that mineral phosphate that you need to have in your system. You have bacteria that contribute to soil st stability, that help to make soil aggregates. And you have bacteria that can help to decompose various types of pesticides in the system. You have fungi that are in the soil can have thousands to tens to thousands of different types of fungi that are there. You have parasites, you have saprophytes, and you have mutualists primarily. Now, I argue with this a little bit. Saprophytes are things that feed off of dead stuff, organic matter that's easy to break down. Parasites, they say, attack foliar or root plant material. They also can attack other fungi, nematodes, microarthropods, and macroarthropods. They can eat both microscopic and macroscopic insects. Funny little side story, when I was studying environmental microbiology in West Virginia, we uh, did a lab project in which we cultivated some fungi that actually will attack flies um, and kill flies. And that fungi, as they often do, kind of got released into the atmosphere in the building. <laughs> and so you would find a whole lot of these, we still find them today, whole lot of these mummified flies <laughs> that got killed by this fungus <laughs> that we cultivated. So you have a lot of these things that happen. And the reason I point this out is not just you know, to say that we can get rid of flies, but to say that this is a way in which the organisms keep each other in balance and in check. And when we talk about various types of parasites or plant diseases or plant pathogens, Oftentimes, it's the way that we think about it. Every organism lives for its own sake. It does what it needs to do in order to be happy. Most often, an organism will, many of the, the parasites that are out there, many of the disease-causing organisms, both fungi and bacteria and nematodes, many of them actually have part of their life cycle when they can feed off of other things. Now, there are some that are completely parasitic, but most of them can actually feed off of dead stuff. Now, if you could do that, wouldn't you be happier eating something that doesn't attack you than to attack something that could attack you back? <laughs> so what do you usually go for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going to go and run after that living cow. <laughs> you're going to wait till somebody else or, or to slaughter it so that you don't have to be out there with your knife and fork trying to cut off the meat from the cow that's running in the field. <laughs> you don't want to attack something that's alive. But what we do with a lot of our systems, with the way that we raise monoculture crops, is we get too many of one population and not enough diversity where we have predator and prey relationships that control that population. So they run out of dead stuff to eat, and so now they have to attack living stuff. So our disease issues are issues that we cause. Now one of the big organisms that's gonna be working with this trading carbon is the mycorrhizal fungi. And what they will do is they can take carbon, they can take four to 30% of the carbon from the plant, it's gonna be transferred to these mycorrhizal fungi. Our vascular mycorrhizal fungi are ones that will actually grow inside the plant roots. 
You have other types of mycorrhizal fungi that won't grow inside the plant roots. But these are very efficient because they can grow inside the plant roots. They penetrate the plant root cell wall and grow up next to the membrane and form these highly branched structures called arbuscules. Now, what do we do on Arbor Day? We plant trees because they have arbor. They have branches. The branches that are on the trees, the branches that are on plants, mimic this. This actually came along first. These organisms had these highly branched structures so that they could go out there and efficiently colonize an environment. What it is is it's called a higher surface area to volume ratio. So you have these very efficient way of doing this. Again, the bigger you are, the more food it takes to maintain you. If you can be very thin and extend yourself further, you can have more exposure to that environment. The branches on the trees are a very good way of representing this because what you want to have is you want to have leaves on those branches so that the tree will always have some leaves that will have contact with the sun. Some of them will be in shade, but as the sun passes overhead, you're going to have more of them. They're going to have more contact with sunlight so that the tree can always be doing photosynthesis. For the mycorrhizal fungus, they'll have more branches that are out there to maximize their uptake of the nutrients from the soil. And then they'll grow inside the plant roots, penetrate the root cell wall, and have these branches in order to be able to do this exchange inside the root cell wall most efficiently. So literally, the name of these fungi, and if you're going to remember one name of one organism, remember mycorrhizal fungi. If you want to, you can add arbuscular on there, because that's pretty easy, because literally the name means little tree-like, arbuscular, little tree-like. Myco is the Greek word for fungus, and rhizo is the Greek word for root. So they're little tree-like fungus root fungi. And they figured out how to do this before plants came onto land. In an aquatic environment, it's hard to get access to mineral nutrients because they're all floating around and very diffuse in an aquatic environment. If you're a single-celled bacteria, it was beneficial to you to join up with a fungus that had branches, had arms that could go out there and grab onto those minerals. And then those bacteria could do photosynthesis and they would feed that carbon to the fungus to be able to do that. Nature mimics what works well. We have branches on trees because we had branches on our vascular mycorrhizal fungi. And one of the things that these fungi will do, this is part of their engineering of their habitat. They create these soil aggregates, these pellets that are in the soil. Basically, again, grab your shovel, Go out there, take some soil, run it through your fingers, feel it, smell it, look at how much roots are in there, get an idea of what the porosity is, what is it, the color of it, all of those types of things. If you want to, take it back into your house, lay it out on a piece of newspaper, cover it with the, another piece of newspaper or any type of paper, you don't have to have newspaper, but some type of paper, lay it out on that, let it air dry. While it's air drying, go there and sort of massage it. I have my staff I try and explain this to, to students that work for me. You have to massage your soil. <laughs> it's fun to work in my lab. Massaging soil is a big part of what we do. 
So you massage your soil while it's drying. You let it dry for roughly about five days or so, depending on the humidity of, of where it is that you're living. If you need to sort of dry it a little bit more if it's too humid in your environment, you can um, put it in your oven, but you have to have your oven down to like 100 degrees or so, so don't have it too hot in there. But anyway, you can put, you put that in your oven to dry that off. Then what we do is we basically take that soil and we pass it through a series of two screens. So go to the hardware store, pick up two screens. Make sure they have different size openings. Pass it through the screen that has the bigger opening first. Then collect that material on a new piece of newspaper, pour that over the next size screen, pass it through that next size screen. And that's the size of aggregates that you'll have. You'll have these pellets that'll be there. Those pellets, these pellets are one to two millimeter aggregates, is what they're called. We basically had a, one mil, a two millimeter opening screen, passed it through there, collected what passed through, put it on a one millimeter screen. What didn't go through was what we took a look at. So then I put them into a Petri plate. I don't care what you use. Saucers work really well. Use a saucer, put them on there. And all that I did was I added a little bit of water. I had a squeeze bottle. You want to make sure that when you're adding water, you don't water over the aggregates. So I squeezed it so that it was sprayed on the edge, on the lip. So again, if you have your saucer, spray it on the lip of the saucer so that the water is going to flow down into the aggregates because you want this bicapillary action. You don't want the force of the water, that energy from you squeezing the water on it, to break up these aggregates. And see what happens. Now, WSA is a measurement that we do in the laboratory. It's basically a weight measurement for the weight of this, how many of those aggregates actually stayed together, how much fell apart. So our WSA here was 14%. Uh, WSA stands for water stable aggregation. This was 47%, this was 93%. This was done at a research farm in North Dakota the fields were separated by about a kilometer or so, um, so less than a mile between the plots. In fact, these two were side by side, so the pasture was a little bit separated. So we have a conventional till spring wheat fallow system, a no-till spring wheat winter wheat sunflower system, and a moderately grazed pasture. Now this is, these are not organic systems, these were conventional systems. So they had conventional inputs into the system. Um, but what we see here is that there's a big difference with tillage. But I think that the bigger difference is actually coming from this fact that we had, again, spring wheat and fallow. Not a whole lot of carbon time. Not a whole lot of carbon inputs. We went to no-till. We had a more diverse crop rotation. So we didn't do the tillage. We had a more diverse crop rotation, but we didn't see much of a change in aggregation. Now, I've worked with other soils where we've had no-till farmers that, you know, have been in no-till for 30, 40 years. I've even worked with, you know, some of this, done some of this on organic farms. And part of the issue is, is that it's very difficult for us to break 50% for aggregate stability for these size of aggregates. For some of the smaller aggregates we can, but for these size of aggregates, and these are kind of the crucial size of aggregates that we're looking at here. So for these size of aggregates, we can't really break 50%. 
But when we go to moderately grazed pasture, we're at 93%. What's the biggest difference between this and this? Between a no-till diverse crop rotation and a moderately grazed pasture. Animals is a big difference, but carbon is a big difference with one, the animals, but also you have something growing. You don't have the disturbance by tillage, but you have something growing all the time in the pasture. You've got much more diversity and more of that crop because it's growing and it's being grazed, more of that crop is in a vegetative growth stage. So we're putting a lot more carbon into the soil. That's what it is that we want to do. We constantly want to be putting carbon into the soil as much as we possibly can. So you also have some larger organisms in the soil. We have protozoa. Um, and these organisms are far more dependent upon water films. The fungi can actually grow through air-water interfaces. The thing I want to point out about with protozoa is they're an important part of the nitrogen cycle because they eat a lot of bacteria. They will eat, they can eat up to 10,000 bacteria a day. They have a very voracious appetite. Now, this being said, I apologize to all of you. I know we're going to go to lunch after this, and I'm holding you off from lunch because it's noon right now. But here's the deal. You don't eat food. You chew food. You're going to go to lunch, and you're chewers. You're going to chew the food. Sometimes. You should be chewers, though. You should be in the mom is right. I see a little kid here. Mom is right and dad is right. Tells you to chew. You got to chew right. You got to chew a lot. Make sure you chew really well. Because the better you chew, the happier the bacteria in your gut and the fungi in your gut are. Because in the end, what goes into our bloodstream is the poop from bacteria and fungi. You eat poop. I know you do every day. I've seen you do it. <laughs> That's what it is that we do. That's how the system works. We know this because we know that if we want to add fertility to our soil, some of the best fertility that we get is manure from animals. Guess what we are? These are also a form of animal. They will eat bacteria and fungi and they poop out nitrogen in the plant available form. Everybody poops and everybody eats poop. It's a wonderful way the world works. Makes me so happy. <laughs> now you have also you have nematodes. Nematodes get a pretty bad rap. Most nematodes are not plant pathogenic. Most nematodes are not plant pathogenic. They are a very important part of the nitrogen cycle because they do the same thing that the protozoa do. They will eat a lot of bacteria and fungi and poop out nitrogen that's in the plant available form. Now the other thing is, is that you also can have some of these relationships. This is a nematode. This is what's called a nematode trapping fungus. It's pretty cool. The fungal hyphae will actually make a loop grow around in a loop, makes a lasso, and then it gives off exudates, it gives off chemicals, it gives off sugars, and basically tells the nematode, there's food here, come find me. And it sits there and it waits. And once part of the nematode grows through that loop, what the fungus does is there's no cell walls between the different cells in this fungus, so it causes all of the fluid in the surrounding cells to move towards this loop that causes that to swell, 
similar to, you know, if you sprain your ankle, fluid goes there and your ankle swells. Fluid goes into that and it closes the loop and then that traps the nematode and then it digests and eats the nematode, produces enzymes that eat the nematode. So you have organisms in the soil that are gonna keep other organisms in check, this predator and prey relationship, balancing various types of populations that you wanna have. Now, you also have microarthropods. This is you on a microscopic scale. These are microscopic insects. When I'm talking with conventional farmers, the most important thing that you can remove from the system is an insecticide. Even within organic insecticides, you wanna be careful with the types of insecticides and when it is that you're applying them because you can very adversely affect insect populations, including microscopic insect populations. These are microscopic insects and these are the chewers. So just like you were gonna to go to lunch and you were gonna chew what you're gonna be given for lunch, and that's gonna go into your gut and feed the bacteria and fungi in your gut, if you don't chew right, see, you gotta chew well. I told you, right? You gotta chew well, because if you don't chew well, your stomach gets upset. Your stomach gets upset because the bacteria and fungi in your gut can't break down that material, it's too big. So they're not happy because they're not getting fed. And they're going to let you know that. And you're not going to be happy. So you're going to have to be spending time in another little room that you don't want to spend time in. <laughs> so you want to have these microscopic chewers chew the organic matter so that the bacteria can eat it. If you reduce the chewers, you don't have good bacterial populations that are gonna be able to process the nutrients into the plant available form. Everybody works together in that soil food web. Now it's important, again, that we keep in mind who pays and how that gets paid for, but that everybody has to work together in these consortia. Um, we've got earthworms in the soil, and we can have huge changes in populations of earthworms, depending on the quality of soil. What's interesting to me about the earthworms is that their lubricated tunnels act a little bit like a bellows and they can force air in and out of the soil environment. And this is really important to the health of the plants as well as to the health of microorganisms. The plant roots are aerobic, just like us. They take in oxygen and they give off CO2. The foliar parts of the plant take in CO2 and give off oxygen. But the roots actually take in oxygen. Oftentimes it's oxygen that actually gets translocated down into the roots, but they give off CO2 into the soil environment. So if you've ever noticed when you've got a field that's flooded, the plants start to look very pathetic. They start to look very green. Uh, they'll start to look, starting to look very yellow start to die. There's nothing wrong with the above ground part of the plant. Nothing wrong with that. What's happening is that the roots are suffocating. The plant is dying from the roots because it has to give off that CO2 and that CO2 can't diffuse well through the water so it builds up around those roots and the plants, the roots die. 
You need to remove that CO2 from that environment. The organisms, many of the microorganisms that are in the soil are doing the same thing. Some of them are anaerobic. Some of them can live both aerobically and anaerobically, but many of them are aerobic. Many of the processes that we need to have happen, happen in an aerobic environment. So the earthworms have these lubricated tunnels that actually force air and oxygen into the soil and pull CO2 out of the soil. Pretty cool way nature works. The earthworm casts are also very high in nutrients. They can contain seven times the amount of nitrogen, 11 times the amount of phosphorus, and nine times the amount of potash than the surrounding soil. So they're very high in nutrients. That being said, you wanna be careful when you're applying earthworm castings because the nutrients that the plants need when they're in that form that's there, that's a salty form. That's how plants take things up as salts. The nutrients are in a salt form. You can burn the plants with adding a too high of a concentration of earthworm casts. So if you're doing it in a pot, mix earthworm castings more like uh, one to 30 in a type of a mix, making sure that you have a pretty diffuse mix of the castings that you would have in that environment. So what we wanna do is we wanna rely on the organisms that are in the soil to be able to do the functions that we need to have happen, to be able to take organic matter from the surface and bring it down deep into the soil. Use earthworms. You don't need to till that residue in. Use earthworms to be able to have it do it for you. What we're gonna see as we improve the system is we're gonna see better water use efficiency. This is again from our research farm. These are side-by-side -side plots, conventional and organic. We have increased the porosity by increasing the aggregation. And if you increase the porosity by 45%, increasing the organic matter that you have in your soil will increase the porosity because you're feeding the biology. The biology is going to make the soil aggregates. Soil aggregates are gonna increase the porosity. If you increase the porosity by 45%, you can increase the infiltration rate of the first inch by 167% and increase the infiltration rate of the second inch by 650%. Flooding doesn't have to be a problem. Flooding is an issue that for the most part we can manage if we do things more appropriately. Again, this is what I talked about with organic matter is you increase organic matter, you can double the water holding capacity the other thing, this was a study that was done at the University of Missouri in the 1950s, and one of the things that um, Dr. Albrecht found was that if you had unfertilized corn, that needed nearly five times the amount of water to produce a bushel of grain as fertilized corn. This is what fertilizer companies have used as the reasoning behind the fact that you need fertilizer. There is nothing in this statement that says that fertilizer needs to come from a synthetic input. It's just having fertility. We can provide fertility more efficiently biologically and reduce the amount of water that's required by that system than if we add it chemically to that system. And that's gonna help with water use efficiency. Now this is another example. This is uh, Gabe Brown's ranch in near Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, this is an environment that, as I said, average rainfall is about 12 to 14 inches. 
We had a tropical rainstorm one day, or at least what felt like a tropical rainstorm. Just dumped buckets on there. 13 inches of rainfall in a 24-hour period. I think at one point we were getting about six and a half, seven inches an hour. This is the next day at his field. <laughs> exactly, it looks good. <laughs> he took his infiltration rate when he started farming in 1991 from a half inch per hour in 20 years to eight inches per hour. Flooding is a man-made problem. Again, the one certainty you have is that the weather is gonna be uncertain. You're not gonna get, you're gonna get 13 inches of rainfall in a 24 hour period in a 14 inch rainfall environment. What we're able to see here and how it is that we're able to change things is incredibly important. So I'm running out of time as I always do, but there's a couple of things that I wanted to be able to show very quickly here. This is from our farming systems trial. And if you get an idea of, this is our different systems that we have, our organic uh, legume and our organic manure and our conventionally based chemical system. This is after about a five year drought period, off and on drought over about eight years. This is our organic. Again, our plots are side by side. We have a five foot buffer between our plots. These were started before NOP. So we don't have our, our, our plots were, weren't designed with the buffer that is the standard buffer. Um, so our crops are sold conventionally. Uh, we do take samples from the middle of our plots. So we do end up getting the 30 foot buffer between our conventional and organic um, with the way that it's designed. But our five foot magic buffer caused rain to fall here and not rain to fall there. Because again, roads, fences, five foot buffers. These things happen, right? We got about a 30% higher yield in our organic system. This was in 2015. Pictures were taken on the same day. Again, plots side by side or relatively side by side. There was actually a, a field in between, a strip in between, 20 foot strip in between, but pretty close. So roughly about 60 feet between them, maybe at most. Same soil type, landscape is pretty flat. We designed this experiment, lay it out so it does this. We were under a drought, or were we? A friend of mine asked the question of what does it mean? What, how, how low of a rainfall, what percentage less of your average rainfall does it take for you to be classified as a drought? And I said, that's not how they do it, because it's not. The areas in the Midwest that were under the drought in 2012, 2011 well, through about 2013, 14, those areas that were under a drought around here got more rainfall than all of the years that I lived in North Dakota. It's not about how much water you get, it's how you use it. Now, yes, you can say, and there are some differences in climate and, and humidity and, and sunlight time and all of those types of things. I'm not trying to say that there aren't. But the reality is, is it's how you use the water in the system that puts you under a drought. And a drought rating when a state or an area is classified or a county is classified under a drought, it's a scouting thing. They go around and drive around the fields and see how many fields look like this. And that's what tells you you have a drought. 
and then the taxpayers have to pay you money for that. Is that a drought? That's a choice. I don't want to pay for your choices anymore. When I was in North Dakota, I was really mad because every year the Red River flooded and I had to pay for building a dike around Fargo and Grand Forks because the idiot farmers around Fargo and Grand Forks plowed and put land rollers on their field. Had no infiltration right to speak of. Now on top of the fact that I got to build, pay for building dikes, I had to pay for them to get preventive planting because most years they couldn't get in because when the snow melted, there was no infiltration rate and the area is flat. That's a choice. This isn't about water. This is about how the plants utilize the water because of the choices we make. So what we had in this system, we had plenty of fertility. We actually have very high phosphate soils. So we had plenty of fertility in this soil. But in the spring, we had a little bit more precipitation than normal. So we had a lot of nutrient runoff, some leaching, or it became unavailable. By the time the plant wanted to go through the reproductive phase, there were no, for the conventional, there was no nutrients available for them anymore. It takes a lot of energy. It's a nutrient-intensive process. There wasn't any there for them to, to utilize. So what they have to do is they have to try and get as much nutrients from the soil as they possibly can. And so what they'll do is they will leak water to try and get those nutrients to move towards those roots. Nutrients have to move in water films. So in this case, what we got, because it was drier than normal in the late summer and fall, we were under a drought because we couldn't manage fertility, because we didn't know how to manage water, because we didn't have the biology there working on the fertility in the conventional system. Dr. Albrecht was right in what it was that he was looking at. This was in 2016. So after two years of this type of a process, our corn yield in 2016 was almost double in some of the plots over the conventional yield. Part of this, and we, as we're looking at how we're going to feed the world and feed the system and get cash money into your pocket, are the choices that you make and who pays for those choices. This, again, is, is at our farming systems trial. This is soybeans. We have a lot of nodules on the soybeans, but all in the tap roots in the conventional. A lot more nodulation, a lot more rooting, a lot more fine roots in the organic much higher productivity in the system, which you're going to be able to see there. The other thing is, is that you're going to have nitrogen that will be available to the subsequent crops in that particular system. I'm going to go back to our vascular mycorrhizal fungi really quick because I want to do one last thing because this is one of my most fun things they get to do when I do these things. I have a lot of fun. So one of my most fun things, and, and I, will, I will take your question. We'll talk afterwards. So I'll take your question after that. So... This is one of my most fun things that we're going to do, and the last thing I'm going to do. Mycorrhizal fungi can satisfy up to 90% of the nitrogen and phosphorus needs that a plant has. One of the ways in which they do this is an interplant nutrient transport. What you have, if you have a legume plant and a grass plant growing side by side, the roots can be growing up next to each other, but the roots cannot anneal to each other. They cannot bind to each other. The mycorrhizal fungi, the fungal hyphae, however, can colonize the roots of the legume and colonize the roots of the grass. So it'll be colonizing both of those roots. You also have the rhizobium bacteria that's inside the roots of the legume that's going to be taking atmospheric nitrogen and fixing that into nitrate nitrogen for the plant. 
It's a very energy intensive process to do this. Again, nitrogen is not free. It costs the organisms in the soil. It costs them carbon, but it also costs them phosphorus. Essentially, it takes roughly 32 of these molecules called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. It's a sugar bound to three phosphate groups. What happens in the cell is you have one of those phosphate groups that gets ripped off. When that gets ripped off, it releases electrons. Those electrons then go into an electron transport chain that fire the cell or fire the mitochondria, provide energy. And the bacteria, it's firing the cell. They're transported across the membrane because the bacteria don't have mitochondria. But essentially, it's the way they provide energy to the cell to fix nitrogen. Now, there is a relationship that exists that contains five different organisms. We're going to have the two plants. We've got the grass and we've got the legume. In this relationship that you have, the grass will ask the mycorrhizal fungus, it'll say, I will give you carbon if you were able to give me nitrogen and phosphorus and other micronutrients from the soil. So the mycorrhizal fungus says, all right, that's a good deal. I have actually a relationship because I'm inside the roots of the legume. The legume is going to be able to give me nitrogen in order to be able to have this process happen more efficiently for me. So, the mycorrhizal fungus goes to the legume and it says, can you give me excess nitrogen in order to be able to feed the, the, this grass that I'm associated with? And by the way, can you also give me some carbon? The legume says, all right, I can do that. So the legume then goes and says to the bacteria, can you fix more nitrogen for me so that I can go and get more nutrients from the mycorrhizal fungus that I need to have? And the bacteria says, well, in order for me to be able to do that, I need to have more phosphorus. So, the legume goes back to the mycorrhizal fungus and it says, I need to have more phosphorus. The mycorrhizal fungus goes back to the grass and says, well, I need you to help me to be able to get more phosphorus. And the grass says, all right, you know what? I can help you out, but you need to really be able to kick this nitrogen thing up for me. And so then the grass, the mycorrhizal fungus says, all right, well, I got this relationship with the phosphate solubilizing bacteria that live in my fungal hyphae. And they're going to take the phosphate that's bound to minerals in the soil and release that phosphorus so that I can take that up and then put that into the mycorrhizal fungi, fungal hyphae so that I can take that hyphae inside the roots of the grass plant and give some of that phosphate to the grass. And then I'll take some of that phosphate and I'll give that to the legume. And the legume will give some of that phosphate to the rhizobium bacteria so the rhizobium bacteria can fix more nitrogen so that I can feed both of you guys. But you guys have got to really get step up the carbon thing because I've got to feed this phosphate solubilizing bacteria. <laughs> now, it says, all right and starts doing this, but it can't do it very efficiently. So one of the things that it does is it says, all right, in order to be able to kick up this efficiency process, it goes back to the grass, because it's had a really long relationship with grasses. Grasses are older than legumes. So it goes back to the grass and it says, can you help me out here? And the grass says, all right, you know what? I can give you the secret code to accumulating phosphate so that you can accumulate phosphate in your fungal hyphae against a gradient. There's only so much phosphate usually you can stuff in, but I can tell you how to stuff more. So the grass will give the mycorrhizal fungus the secret code so that it can go there and it can stuff more phosphate in. It will also give it some of the carbon so the carbon can go and then be fed to the phosphate solubilizing bacteria. The phosphate solubilizing bacteria will solubilize more phosphate. Additional phosphate will go into the hyphae of the mycorrhizal fungus. That phosphate, some of it will go to the grass. Some of that will go to the legume. The legume will give some of that phosphate to the rhizobium bacteria. The rhizobium bacteria will then take some of that phosphate and give that uh, to fixing up nitrogen, and we'll take some of that nitrogen and we'll give some of that nitrogen to the legume, and the legume will then give some of that nitrogen to mycorrhizal fungus, so that nitrogen can then go into the grass. <laughs> now, <laughs> who's on first is always the question. <laughs> I don't know. What's on second, though? <laughs> 
So the thing with this is, is we know that this happens scientifically because we've done labeling studies in order to be able to see this. Now, it's naive of us to think that this doesn't happen with a whole lot of other nutrients that are out there. These relationships with organisms working in these multi-species consortia in order to be able to satisfy the needs of the plants when the plants have them so that they don't suffer from drought stress, that's actually fertility stress, so that they're able to produce higher yields and more nutritious crops because they have the minerals that are now being obtained from the soil in order to be able to make the biomolecules and the antioxidants that are important for us as human beings when we're eating that food. These are the things we can get by working with the biology that's in the system and building that resilience and that soil health that's gonna allow these systems to continue to thrive. So that's what I want you to do is every day think about how am I feeding them and am I making them homeless? If I make the wrong choice, what are some of the other choices that I can make to improve the system? I can't always go forward, but I certainly don't want to always be going backward. Thanks to Dr. Chris Nichols for her talk at the 2017 Moses Conference. We've got a lot of field days coming up, so be sure to check out that link in the show notes. And we've also been putting together videos from those field days, so visit our YouTube page to check that out. And thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Leave us a voice memo of a memorable farm smell, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a farmer friend about the show. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. One of our programs for beginning farmers is an event called New Farmer U. It will be held on October 29th and 30th, 2021 in Willow River, Minnesota, along with our partners Renewing the Countryside. It is a two-day event with a focus on farm financial and business management, geared toward farmers with three to six years of farming experience, or farmers with less experience who are ready to plan for the future of their farms. Check out mosesorganic.org slash newfarmeru for more information. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. Thanks again for listening.